Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Okay, here we go. It's time to do the news. we got all kinds of uh, things to tell you about here today. Before I introduce the panel, I will tell you that we, the news is live on Facebook Live. So uh, I assume that that means you go to the Colin McEnroe Show page, Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook, and there you will find us all. You get to see the people that you're hearing, if that's important to you. Uh, it's not important to them. In fact, they would rather that you didn't. Uh, but... But you might anyway. Uh, and let me tell you who these people are. Rebecca Castellani is a scholar of modern literature. Rand Richards Cooper is a contributing editor at Commonweal and writes the In Our Midst column for Hartford Magazine. Kate Russian is a poet whose The Bridge Poem is featured in The Atlantic uh, and, and in a video project by the filmmaker Lucy Walker. So um, so here we go. I'll tell you uh, that uh, one of the things that we're doing that we've never done before is to have the panel read a book. We don't usually do that because we don't have time. Uh, but we give them lots of lead time, came up with this idea, I think, in early May or maybe even late April. Uh, and so we read a book called The Power by Naomi Alderman. We will be talking about that in the second segment of the show. And then call it serendipity or call it just, you know, when you're, when you're looking for something, you find it. There seem to be a lot of other topics that kind of fit in with some of the, the-, the themes in The Power. Uh, the themes of The Power have to do with sex roles and, and, and violence. Um, and so it just turns out that, um, that, that Washingtonian Magazine has published uh, this week uh, an oral history uh, of the Bobbitt case, the John and Lorena Bobbitt case uh, 25 years later. Uh, not so much violence in the second topic, ESPN's body issue, which shows the beautiful bodies of both male and female athletes is making history this year in both in Connecticut and in the country at large by putting on the cover um, two female athletes who are uh, girlfriends, and one of them is our own Sue Bird. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that too. Uh, the other one is the soccer player, and I'm being told by the booth it is R- Rapino, or at least in, in the clips that we've heard, it's Rapino, but it might be Rapino. Megan Rap- Rapino, uh, the soccer player, is the other uh, woman in, in this rather striking and uh, lovely nude picture. Uh, all right, well, that is to come. Uh, so let's start with the Bobbits. Um, and uh, really kind of right before the OJ case in a lot of ways, there was uh, this other thing that I think pretended what a so-called media circus could become like. Uh, it was the case uh, of a married couple in Manassas, Virginia. Uh, according to Lorena Bobbitt, uh, her husband forced himself uh, on her sexually and not for the first time at the end of a long night of carousing without her. Uh, and her response when she woke and he still slept uh, was to fetch a knife and cut off his penis. Uh, and um, that was even a difficult thing to say on the air back then. People didn't say penis that much, believe it or not, or really hardly hardly at all. Uh, and it became a national story, an international story, uh, and uh, the stuff of late night comedy. Uh, the penis, we should say, was reattached uh, surgically, even though it was not he, he, Mr. Bobbitt and his penis did not arrive at the hospital at the same time. He showed up first. They had to go looking uh, for where the penis had been thrown. It had been thrown out of a car window by Lorena Bobbitt. It was in front of a 7-Eleven. It was packed. 
in, I think, a bag of a hot dog bag of ice. I don't know. There's a bag that was used for hot dogs. I mean, that's a little um, bit almost too perfect. But all right. So, Rand, you must, first of all, remember all this, right? You must remember this. A slice is just a slice. Well, I remember it through a special lens. In the early 90s, I was living in Germany, and I'd been living in Germany for about five years. So when this happened, the first thing I'll say is that when this happened and then when the OJ case happened, it was one of those moments when immersed in a, in a very – in a somewhat different culture, you wonder what the heck is going on in America? Are we going completely, completely nuts? Why have these events become such, such spectacles? So the first thing I have to say about this is maybe it, you know, it has to do with some shift in, in some sort of new – hybrid between news, entertainment and spectacle that that I, I would lump this event and and the OJ event uh, with in together. The second thing I'd say is this this case and both reading about it the way we did and talking about it now has a very serious side and then this other side that is that is like crazily funny in in the darkest kind of way. So it's that that split is you know worth talking about? Yeah, I mean, I was shrieking with laughter reading this oral history. Although, to tell you the truth, some of my laughter may have been rather nervous laughter. So, yeah, Kate, it's both. It was both a very new way to tell a story, but it's a very old story in a way. I mean, it's part of the fundamental Freudian wiring of human beings: anxiety about this kind of thing. Somebody's going to cut off your penis. Is you know, I mean, it's 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 almost part of our, our myths. Um, and it, it just it's just that it never really actually happens. I mean, we don't really uh, – we, we might have dreams about it. We might have uh, old, old um, stories about it. But uh, suddenly it was there as kind of a thing we could look at on the news. I was really glad to um, read the oral history uh, in The Washingtonian because like most people, I remember – uh, the media circus aspect. I remember, of course, the most sensational aspect of the whole story. So I was glad to read it again um, to see that in the trial, uh, John Wayne Bobbitt was not uh, found guilty of marital rape with which he was charged. And Lorena Bobbitt was judged not guilty by reason of insanity and then was in an institution for a period of time. Um, I also did not know or remember that Lorena Bobbitt was a young uh, immigrant from Ecuador and she didn't speak perfect English mm -hmm. and uh, she talked about the fact that uh, he was her – John Wayne Bobbitt was her first boyfriend. Mm -hmm. So she was very young inexperienced, hadn't dated before, and uh, he was a Marine. He was a Marine vet. So I found, found those details uh, to be really enlightening. Um, yeah, Rebecca, I'm also wondering for somebody your age, um, I mean, did you just grow up knowing about this or was, did this? Uh, no. Yeah. I was two when this happened, so yeah. it wasn't really on my radar. Um, but Gosh, about 10 years, well, maybe maybe 11 or 12 years after that, I was uh, before I was a scholar of modern literature, I wanted to be a doctor. So I went to this youth leadership forum on medicine. And I will never forget, the, really my only memory from this was this story going around as like medical lore. Like this guy had his penis cut off and they reattached it. They put it on ice. So it was like this nerdy medical story. And that was really my only frame of reference for it. So reading this summary of you know all the ins and outs, 
I was not aware, as Kate said, that, you know, she was uh, not guilty by reason of insanity and he was just not guilty full stop. And then he went on to have a career based off of this. I mean, he, he's had a career in porn. He's made a whole spectacle and livelihood off of this horrific incident while she's completely, you know, she had to spend time in a psych ward and then she completely retreated from the public eye, got married. So I just think it's a really interesting microcosm as to how we really haven't ever treated women's stories with the same validity as we treat men's stories. And there's, a, there's more excuses available, I think, a lot of the times. Well, I mean, although I just have to pause and say, if you cut the penis off a sleeping person, <laughs> I mean, you, you probably you, – there's only a few things that can be said about that. And one, one of the few things that she could say in that situation was, I was temporarily crazy. And they had a law in Virginia that said if you – if you plead temporary insanity, you have to go under observation for forty-five days. I mean, I don't, I don't know, like what other outcome there might have been. I mean, it to wasn't me, an that's accident. self-defense. I, if you're raped by someone and you've had a history of violence with them and you've reached the end of your tether and you're, you know, panicked in the wake of rape, I don't necessarily see that as. Well, typically, you could leave the house, call the police. There actually are other remedies besides cutting off somebody's penis. It's, it's I mean, let, let's be honest about this. That's not a societally sanctioned no. response to it. I mean, the only real explanation for it is I went crazy. I didn't think about calling the cops. I didn't think about leaving the house. All I could think to do was cut off his penis. Well, it was a horrible, horrible act of violence uh, that Lorena Bobbitt per- perpetrated perpetuated against, perpetrated against John Wayne Bobbitt. But I also what gets lost in the story is the horrible violence that he had yeah. repeatedly right. visited upon her leading up to uh, that, that situation, that horrible situation. I don't, I don't think that really gets lost. Um, uh, she, when I was a kid, mid-60s, uh, there was a woman in our neighborhood. She had two uh, young sons whom I knew and her husband was also in the military um, abused her badly and um, he had a gun in the house and and one night she shot him mm-hmm. and he died. And uh, she was convicted of manslaughter and her repeated testimony um, in, in the trial that she had been abused for a long time was given really no credibility. She served a bunch of time in prison. During that time, she was a pretty self-motivated person. She got a PhD in like musicology or something and later taught at a college. And I, what I want to point to was the environment of opinion in, in that town ran like nine to one against her. She got away with, with murder. Well, she didn't get away with it. She did a lot of time. To one way I see the Bobbitt case is, is that um, you know, the sort of ambient opinion surrounding what constitute, constitutes an, an, you know, a, a justified response of a woman to uh, sexual marital violence between 1965 and, and this case had changed a lot and this case did something to change that. And that I see as the serious side of this. Mm. That I would urge people to read and Connie, you probably got a link on, on your mm-hmm. – to read. Now, shifting to the, the funny side of this, we, we all know that sort of dark humor is a – kind of self-protective device. Some things are so awful in like the mythic Greek sense that Colin invoked in the, that we can hardly we can hardly really behold them. So we shield ourselves with humor. This, the testimony of the people involved in this oral history is just one parade of really awful jokes after another so that you're simultaneously laughing. And as Colin said, you're sort of trembling at the fact that you're laughing. I think 
the, the males in the room could probably feel that way. For me, I felt a mounting sense of that my whole narrative of this had betrayed the facts of the story, which is that I thought this was a humorous story about a woman having enough and you know, chopping off her husband's member without realizing the, the greater context the story was framed in, which was years of abuse. As Kate pointed out, a young immigrant woman with not a great grasp on the English language. And at the end of the day, in my opinion, rape is violence committed against genitals. And I don't see this as a huge, you know, rape is one thing, but cutting off somebody's penis is like that's so much more egregious than raping someone. I, I think that rape is, is as egregious as it gets. Well, one thing about this is, and maybe this is Duran's point a little bit, is their immediate response, both of them, was to hire publicists. Um, they both hired publicists. And, and this, this is the dawning of something new. I mean, in a way, stories like this that play out in the press, they're very old. I mean, you can go back to the Evelyn Nesbitt Stanford White uh, murder case that just dominated newspapers. You know, it was one of the subplots of the, of the book Ragtime. Um, you know, th things like that that involve famous people doing horrible things to one another, that's not that new. But th this understanding that you could in, in the culture that was going to lead to reality television and things like that and, and already had in the sense of the loud family uh, um, mm -hmm. and stuff like that, you could – maybe your smart move was to sort of see how you could tell your story in a very effective way that you might even be able to monetize. And so this oral history does talk about the fact that you know newspapers typically struggle about whether to name the victim uh, of a rape or not uh, and usually don't but she hired a publicist. So the Washington Post, for example, made a different decision. Uh, uh, the, I think it was the Vanity Fair article. They showed up with a very famous photographer. Uh, the publicist said she's not getting in the swimming pool. And according to the photographer, minutes later, Lorena Bobbitt was in a bathing suit in the swimming pool for part of the photo shoot. Uh, John Bobbitt was doing exactly the same thing. And Rebecca, as you say, ultimately just became a porn actor. Yeah, and in the name of his film, <laughs> John Bobbitt Uncut. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, yes, this is a, there, there's tragic components of this on either side. But in a way, this is also a story about how people learn to monetize tragedy in the United States and, and, and go after some other brass ring you know, pretty quickly. I think it's also the case that helped bring the terms um, domestic violence, uh, woman battering and marital rape – uh, more into the public, national public conversation, which I think uh, was really important. One important thing that came out of the case. And I find it um, not quite so I ironic that um, uh, Lorena Bobbitt, who's now Lorena Gallo, runs a foundation to uh, prevent domestic violence and to educate around it. And uh, John Wayne Bobbitt went on to uh, be accused of battering two more intimate partners. Right. He's clearly a creepy, horrible, violent guy. And, uh, you know, even if you had some doubt about it at the end of those two trials, uh, some of those doubts are allayed by his after story, as you point out. Colin, can we just point quickly to the form of this? I'm interested in it. There's, so if, for those who haven't read it, anyone who had anything to do with any aspect of this case, including surgeons, lawyers, the cops who were there, are sort of invited in effect to this round table. So the format, the familiar one is sort of eyewitness to history format. It's the kind of thing you, you, you saw with like the Cuban Missile Crisis mm -hmm. where many decades later, some event of global importance, we now collect all the players and they're all sort of reconciled in a way. The main thing for them is now that this happened and we were there. Right. So there's a way in which this form generally is attached to like major global historical events. It's inherently formally ironic really mm -hmm. to have the, the, the 
slicing of a man's penis be um, be the content for this kind of form? Yeah, it's sort of a TikTok, as we sometimes call it in journalism. You sort of walk through moment by moment all these people. I mean, there there are moments, for example, uh, the surgeon who did the reattachment, who uh, I think it's fair to say had never done. <laughs> Anything like that before, and it took him nine and a half hours. He said, "Now he could probably do it a lot faster." But you know, this is sort of terra incognita. But there's this amazing quote where he says that the other surgeons didn't believe it uh, and said, "Well, it's like dangling or something, right?" And that's how you're going to. And he said, "No, no, it was like in the front, you know, the front yard of a Seven Eleven. They had to go get it, um, you know." And the surgeons were coming in to watch because they just nobody had ever seen anything like. It. I guess he said, "It's it's there. It's sitting over there on the table." Uh, so you read these things, and it, it does have this sort of Gogol-like level of just insanity to I it. I like that they tried to have a dog come find it, and the German right. Shepherd couldn't find it, but a Cocker <laughs> Spaniel could. Yeah. Oh, that I did that, get a chuckle yeah. out of. That was, was the, that one of the many jokes. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that was we, one we of the many jokes. We can see why that would be the right yeah. dog. Right. Um, so anyway. Anyway, we are going to switch gears here maybe to a happier kind of story. I hope so. So every year um, uh, ESPN, the magazine, uh, does something called The Body Issue. Uh, famous athletes disrobe and pose uh, for very interesting, interestingly posed uh, pictures that accentuate their rippling muscles uh, and their uh, aerodynamic forms. And I don't know how else to talk about this. Uh, and uh, this year, um, there's actually two uh, very famous UConn basketball players involved. Brianna Stewart, uh, and I think more significantly, Sue Bird, who was, of course, the great point guard on some of the legendary UConn women's teams, has gone on to be a big star in the WNBA. She's the all-time assist leader in the WNBA, playing for the Seattle franchise. Um, she's currently dating a soccer player named Megan Rapinoe, uh, and the two of them pose together. Uh, they're the cover. Uh, it's an interestingly – you may have seen the – I mean, it'll be easy for you to go find the picture. It's everywhere right now. Uh, but they are interestingly symmetrical. Uh, she's uh, – Sue Bird is kind of spinning or at least a, uh, kind of holding up a, a weight basketball uh, on her finger, whereas Megan Rapino sort of on a diagonal from there is holding down a white soccer ball with her foot. Uh, and uh, I've watched this fascinating uh, interview that ESPN did, a little video interview of the two of them talking about it, which is just terrific. And But, well, I mean, so let's, Kate, let's start here. I mean, this is, a, like, I, I think this is great and revolutionary, but it does sort of kick up against one tripwire, which is that one of the things that we've been told an awful lot here in Connecticut in particular is don't sexualize women basketball players. You know, don't talk about whether Kelly Schumacher is hot or not. You know, that's not relevant. She's an athlete. Um, uh, when athletes begin disrobing and exhibiting themselves nude, I, I don't know. I mean, I once again, I, I love this picture. Uh, it's one of the happiest pictures I've seen in a long time with these two beautiful athletic women smiling. Uh, but I mean, there is a little – some people – I think Rand said this in the email. Some people are going to look at this for the wrong reasons and in the wrong way. Well, you know, I think I would have a – might have a different attitude about the whole – about the picture if I uh, – we're seeing it for the first time, say, in MoMA, mm -hmm. I'd probably have a different attitude. But because it's on the cover of ESPN magazine, you know, I have to ask myself, is this, is this uh, woman power and gay power here in June, or is this just a different version of the same old, same old? And yes, the, the, it's beautiful, et cetera, et cetera. But we can't get away from the fact that being naked is being in the down position. And whenever anyone uh, wants to dominate someone, 
what they do, imprison someone, kidnap someone, they take their clothes off of them to, humili- to humiliate them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we can't separate all those things from the image, uh, even though we might enjoy looking at the beauty of the photo and, and, and these two uh, strong, healthy, accomplished athletes. Um, you know, when men can, men can take their shirts off and pose on a cover and they're not exposing their total selves. Well, true. Whereas, I mean, although, I mean, for most of these people, first of all, men in the body issue, we should be clear, they don't take their shirts off. They take all their clothes off. Everybody takes all their clothes off. And usually the poses don't show, you know, right. the na- naughty bits, whether it's the men or the women. Yeah. I guess I, I still have to ask myself, you know, what this means uh, not just as a nice cover, but what this means in terms of what women in general and uh, women athletes in particular are fighting for in terms of pay and endorse, endorsements and Title X and all of that. I don't know. Uh, Rebecca, how do you see it? That's a really interesting point, Kate, that I hadn't crossed my mind. I mean, I I saw this on a very superficial level that I'm glad – ESPN is showing more inclusivity of the people they're choosing to feature in these spreads. Adam Rippon, the ice skater, was also featured um, completely bare from behind, too, I might say, in terms of being exposed. He's pretty exposed and he looks great. Um, But that is a point that I hadn't crossed my mind that I do think is worth, you know, just letting sit. I mean, I I, I don't think I've got anything else I can add to that other than it's definitely broadened my opinion on on that piece. And I thank you for your comments because I I was looking at this from kind of a a purely – they're stunning athletes. The human body is the human body. Isn't isn't it beautiful? Aren't we amazed that these two beautiful women uh, are are, we're lucky enough to have women athletes like this? But I think to your point, the women athletes face an enormous uphill battle to get the same sort of access and – pay and publicity that the male athletes do. So, yeah, no, I, I just really am thankful for Kate for bringing that up. Rand? So there's, there's text and then there's context. And what Kate essentially said is we really need to focus on the context. Uh, let me focus first on the text, that being the photographs themselves. The, the, <clears throat> the bodies of professional athletes, male or female, are beautiful. The strength the sleekness, the power that they imply. Colin, we were talking earlier about how the typical athlete will, will burn, you know, 4,500 calories during whatever they're, whatever they're doing. I, I think first and foremost, anyone who doesn't see um, the simple beauty of these images of these athletes um, is, is something's getting in the way of that. Now, are there other questions? Sure, you know, there are other questions. But if I compare the, the image that we're talking about with, say, the images I've seen over the years in the in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition, we're we're talking, in my view, a quality, a different category of image with a different category of meaning. So for me, um, yeah, let's go and talk about control of images. Let's talk about um, who's who's making money off of these things, and and we can also talk about is. Are there are there people out there looking at the looking at this in ways that are are different from simply awed admiration of athletes? Sure, there are. Is that a problem? I don't know. I have my response to it, and it, and it is what it is. I'm I'm awed. Yeah, I I do think 
This is sort of revolutionary in a, in a couple of other ways. I mean, and I think it's really important that it's Sue Bird, and I'll say why. Sue Bird, first of all, has not really been out as a gay woman for very long at all, and she had some real reluctance. Uh, she talks in one thing that I, I can't remember whether I read this or – there's this tremendous uh, um, video interview with the two of them, uh, I think, on ESPN's site. But she was talking about it during the most recent Olympics. There was a questionnaire, 25 things you didn't know about this Olympic athlete. And the last thing she wrote was, I'm gay, for number 25. And then she crossed it out. Uh, she's ha had a little bit of uh, uncertainty about you know, how, how out she wanted to be. And I think for her in particular, if you don't follow UConn women's basketball, and this is going back to the 90s um, or early aughts anyway. I've lost track of the time. But um, she – let me just say, put it this way. I know a lot of middle-aged guys from that time who had really big crushes on Sue Bird. She had this kind of America's sweetheart quality to her. Uh, and I think it's really important for everybody to see, well, in fact, she's made uh, she's made a different way and she's oriented a different way uh, and deal with that. Uh, and she's chosen uh, to be with this uh, pretty fabulously streamlined, athletic, similarly composed soccer player. And that's it. That's I'll tell you, there's some guys in Connecticut who are going to have to swallow hard at that one. You know, um, they have their own idea of who Sue Bird was, uh, and they've had their own little quiet uh, man crush on her. So I think it's a really big statement. And yeah, you know, ESPN's going to try to make some money off of this, as they always do. But I also assume that, yeah, it also changes the visibility and understanding of these women and, and gets them more, for want of a better word, normalized. Uh, and I would assume that that leads to more opportunities for money, uh, acclaim, exposure, not fewer, right? I mean, I, I don't really see that big a downside just because, I mean, somebody's always trying to make money off of somebody else. Well, I'm sure, um, I, I would imagine this whole process was probably empowering for the two two women because um, they, they wouldn't have done it, I assume, if they hadn't wanted to. And I'm sure they went through their own journeys about it. Uh, and I still think it's, it's it's useful to look at it mm -hmm. in, in, in a bigger context. No, I'm glad you brought it up. All right. We have to take a break. We can talk about this longer, but we have to get ready to talk about the power. We read a whole book. We need some time to talk about it. We'll be back. Oh, pay attention to this song, which I chose. I woke up this morning with a bad hangover, and my penis was missing again. This happens all the time. It's detachable. This comes in handy a lot of the time. I can leave it home when I think it's going to get me in trouble. Or I can rent it out when I don't need it. But now and then I go to a party, get drunk, and the next morning I can, for the life of me, remember what I did with it. All right, I should have it right in front of me, but I don't. The name of the emailer, uh, a woman who emailed me months ago saying, do you guys ever talk about books on the nose? You should talk about this book. And she uh, listed uh, this book, The Power, by Naomi Alderman. Now, I personally had not heard of, that, heard of the book. It turns out it was on a number of uh, best books of the year lists last year. It was also one of President Obama's – I think it was his favorite novel uh, of last year. Uh, so I thought, hmm, why not? So uh, it's a book that Rebecca and I were saying this a few uh, episodes ago when we were promoting towards this show. It's one of those uh, books when you describe the premise of it, you sound crazy or you sound like this would be a pretty crazy thing to be holding up as, as literary fiction. But rather than have me or Rebecca or anybody else do it, let's have Naomi Alderman do it. This is actually from a video that she and uh, Joa Ando, who does the um, narration for the audible version of this book, uh, a promotional video that they made. So uh, let's hear what Naomi Alderman says the book's about. So The Power is a 
feminist science fiction novel in which all of a sudden, almost all the women in the world develop the power to electrocute people at will. Like that. Yeah. And I'd go back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the way from a little tickle to full electro death. Um, And then everything's very different because uh, at that point, the silhouette that you need to be frightened of coming down the dark alleyway towards you is not a man's silhouette, but a woman's silhouette. And so on. So, um, Kate, I'm going to have you get us started here. This is a book we should say, well, I, maybe I can just set up a few things about the book. The book is um, uh, framed as something taking place. We don't know exactly when, but there are kind of hints that go along uh, that it might be uh, far in the future. But um, the um, it's framed as a series of um, stories told through essentially four different perspectives. Uh, the four perspectives uh, are uh, a, a young woman who uh, in the midst of this new movement uh, becomes the leader of essentially a, a religious cult or a wide – it's maybe too big to be called a cult but but a kind of church that embraces uh, this kind of power. Uh, there's a young British woman from the criminal underworld uh, who becomes uh, not only a close associate of this new religious leader but also uh, someone who is uh, uh, profiting from a certain – linkage between this power and a certain kind of drug. Um, There's a politician, a female politician uh, who uh, I think rather cynically aligns herself with various other people as it goes along. And you start to see uh, her exhibit some of the uh, traits that we associate with male politicians. Uh, And then there's the only uh, major male character, uh, uh, a young man who very early on becomes kind of the video journalist best positioned to chronicle this whole thing. He makes a name for himself by just being in places where this power is displayed, uh, where this power is used to right wrongs uh, and sometimes where this power is used to commit uh, acts of, uh, of maybe not non-retaliatory violence. But anyway, he becomes very much the, uh, the bard uh, of this whole thing uh, as a video journalist. Um, so uh, that's as much uh, scene setting as I'm <laughs> able to do at this time, Kate. I don't know. Just tell tell me how this novel. Tell us all how this novel spoke to you. Well, I found it uh, to be really interesting in the way it explored uh, power in various realms, as as you've mentioned, power in terms of uh, gender relations, intimate relationships, religion, politics. Uh, journalism, the media, and uh, it was, well, Naomi Alderman flipped the script and uh, and then maybe flipped it or half flipped it again, and I found it an interesting read that kept me moving. Uh, I liked uh, the different characters that she brought together. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, Allie's the um, the abused foster child, abused by fundamentalist pow- uh, parents, and we've got Roxy, the daughter of the uh, the uh, British underworld figure. We've got Tunde, the uh, the Nigerian uh, uh, independent journalist, and we've got Margot, the politician. And I I just found it a very interesting read. Now, I'm not comparing it to War and Peace, mm-hmm. but uh, I felt that it filled one of the reasons that I read and one of the reasons I teach, and that is to discuss values, to discuss what we, what we value as individuals 
and communities and nations. Um, Rain, I think that's something that came out as we were emailing copiously uh, about this book over the last couple of days. I mean, the book works two different ways, or it is two different things. One of them is, as is not unusual for a novel, it's a thought exercise uh, that makes you, uh, that invites you to think very differently about your world, that asks a series of what if questions that then lead to quite a bit of philosophical contemplation. I think it's hard to read this book and not be reacting in a lot of different ways to that. And then it's also a novel. And, and I think you and I both had a feeling that it was more successful at one of those things than, than the other, although I completely was, like Kate, I think pretty gripped by the novel part of it. So there's a I, – I would be – I'm loath to lead with reservations. Why don't I say what I liked about yes, this? I, good idea. I found this book very enjoyable uh, and hard to put down. I read it in, in two long sittings on, on, on two afternoons. And Colin, you, you, you used the, the phrase a thought experiment, which is just what I've written down in, on my notes here. Really, there are two central things on offer in this book, and I found both of them pretty attractive. When, partly, it's an inquiry, obviously, into power and how it works in humans and, and society. There's one point where uh, a character in one scene asks why two others performed a particular act of cruelty and betrayal, and the other character answers simply because they could. The narrator then says that's the only answer there ever is. So partly the book is a kind of novelized meditation on power and human nature. But the second, so maybe a subset of the first, is to highlight through reversal just how awful the patriarchy has been through human history in a sort of like how would you like to be treated this way challenge to males and to male readers. So in doing this, it makes a pretty deft reversal of victimhood and it lets both both characters and readers take in the implications as we see women empowered starting to behave as badly as men. Now, I, I'm the kind of – when I watch horror movies and thrillers, I'm the person who always loves the first third of the movie by far the most when sort of things ominously begin to happen. And I found that was true in many ways in this book as the women begin to recognize – the extent and the uses of their powers. There's one scene where Margot, who's the who's the mayor, uh, and who suffers under uh, an, an obdurate and obnoxious governor whom she detests. Margot has secretly discovered that she has this power. It's politically uh, inconvenient for her to announce this, so really only she knows it. Um, but she starts to experience an interesting new edge to her thoughts about the governor. And as he's um, treating her peremptorily and dismissively, she starts to think. I could kill you for that. And the narrator adds that this thought has become a constant low-level hum in her. So one of the satisfactions this has is for us is having – seeing now through the eyes of newly empowered women uh, a set of thoughts about men that range from simple condescension through objectification, through really uh, quite quite violent and barely suppressed thoughts. And that, I, I found all that pretty captivating in the novel. Yeah. Rebecca? Yeah. I mean, I, I it's hard to say this without seeming like I'm crazy. But I really read this book with uh, – the first time I read it, I did it all in one sitting. It completely gripped me. I haven't had an experience with, with a book like this in a long time where I was back to that childhood feeling of I have to just get under the covers and read this until I stop, until the story's over. And then I read it again slowly. And on the first read, I felt very wrapped up in the stories of these women. And as I, I said in our emails earlier, I found myself saying a lot more than, well, power corrupts everyone, regardless of whether you're a male or a female. I was taking the stance of 
pay attention, men. This is how it feels. This is what it feels like to be underestimated and objectified and have your work plagiarized by your male colleagues. I mean, there's just so many micro instances. You can barely count them all. But it that to me was what was the most powerful thing about this book. And I believe it was the NPR um, book reviewer who said that men read this as a terrifying dystopia, whereas women read this as a fairly accurate assessment of things as they are. And to me, that was more powerful than the novelization. It was. A, I thought it was a good novel. I thought it, you know, for what a novel is supposed to do, it kept me interested. I thought that the characters were compelling. I thought it was cleverly done the way she threaded things together. Um, but what was more powerful for me was the feeling of anger and and violence that I felt on behalf of these women and this idea that I, I want this. I want to walk with power in my hands and not my keys in my hand when I'm walking in my car at night. Like that is something that really appeals to me. And then that kind of got me thinking on my second read, well, why do you feel that way? That's, you know, you really shouldn't want to feel that way. That's not a good feeling. It doesn't feel good. But I think there's a lot of outlets for men to express their violent feelings. You know, we have video games that are marketed towards men. We have, uh, you know, boys will be boys on the playground with fist fighting. And women really aren't given that same space. And I think to imagine a world in which we are scary and powerful and you see a woman across the street and that inspires the same fears, a woman walking alone seeing a big burly man coming towards her across the street, like that's very seductive for me as a 27-year-old young woman that has felt more often than not with power relationships with men that I'm at a disadvantage. I mean, to feel like the advantage is back in, in, in women's hands, quite literally, was really compelling for me. I mean, I think that the book works both ways. I mean, for, uh, certainly as I was reading the book, and I sort of read the book in two chunks too. I read most of it on a long plane ride uh, back from Italy and then put it aside and then picked it up and finished it off. And reading it the first time, yeah, I was constantly toggling back between as horrible things would happen perpetrated by these women who had this new power. I would go, oh, that's really horrible. And then I go, oh, wait a minute, that just... <laughs> going on right now. It just, yeah, the genders have just been flipped. That's all. But it's happening. All of these things are happening right now. Uh, and, but then ultimately, and I think it is like the second half of the book, and, and Alderman herself is on the record about this. I mean, what she says is, uh, obviously, she wants everybody to understand that first point very much. But she also believes that men and women are, that women aren't better than men, men aren't better than women, that, that she, she does believe that if there's nothing about your chromosomal array that makes you into this horrible person, it's the power. It's the power that you have. And whoever has the power is probably going to, there are going to be people within that group who will really abuse the power. And I thought that was a pretty courageous second message. You know, the first message is clearly, as you say, you know, this is happening right now and, and it's not OK. Uh, but the other part of it to, to say, but on the other hand, I can't really imagine it would be any different if the script were flipped. That I, She's a little bit more out on a limb there. You know, people may not all want to accept that idea. Well, I, I've got a, a couple of responses. Once, first, I want to follow up um, on the previous comments. Uh, one example that really hit me is a situ it's a situation where as little girls are developing this electrical power in their skeins, which I thought was a cool joke. Right. We don't have relating, time to explain what a skein is, though. But. Relating to spinsters and, and, and knitting yeah. and women and all of that, uh, that the little boys became afraid of the girls. Mm -hmm. And then the parents of the little boys started keeping them in. Little boys, young men, started keeping them in mm. to keep them safe. And what flipped in my head is how for centuries in all societies, 
girls have been kept in to keep us safe. Girls and women have been kept in to keep us safe. And it struck me as how awful and how awful that is Mm -hmm. that that's the case. And I guess the point I want to make is, of course, I have the knowledge of how women have been treated around the world through the centuries in all societies. But reading it in this story, in this narrative, hit me in a different way when I saw these parents being afraid for their boys. And I thought, whoa, and and it's also awful. It hit me in a new way that how awful it is that that, that parents have to be afraid for their for their girls as well. We want to uh, have time for a long discussion of it, but time is moving very fast here. We might only have time for – I don't know, the, Rand, if there's a particular thing you want to say. Well, so say the downside of being a thought experiment in my opinion for a novel is that you sort of have a basic point. And once it gets made, a question I have as a reader of this novel is, is what's left? Well, to make it over and over and over again, I had the thought that maybe this novel could have worked as a brilliant short story, you know, sort of like Shirley Jackson's story, The Lottery. I, I thought about Jonathan Swift's essay, A Modest Proposal. Um, I, I felt like the novel as a novel didn't really deepen or expand, but but it was simply left to to, 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 to enact its thesis over and over again. Um, and I would also say I often thought of this as a movie in the making. The, the novelist and essayist Annie Dillard who used to teach at Wesleyan once said that sometimes when she's reading a novel, she smells a rat. And the rat is that the writer really intends this as a movie. And there were some scenes like when, when Jocelyn and Daryl are fighting or the first image of, uh, of, of is it Roxy or Allie setting the sea on fire. And I thought, oh, they, they've already got the film treatment in place. That bothered me a little bit. The final thing I would say is that – uh, you you asked Kate a great question in 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 one of the emails. You said, "Well, compared to what? Well, what are we? If we say this is good or not good no- novel, what are we comparing it to?" I thought about a few three other novels that do some of the same stuff. One is called My Absolute Darling by uh, Gabriel Talent, who's the son of uh, novelist Elizabeth Talent. It's about and told through a girl who's living out in the woods with her brutal survivalist father. Another is a book we've discussed here, All the Birds Singing. I would also – I don't read a lot of sci-fi, but Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. These are three books which which I think do a lot of the same thing that this book is doing. But they do it in in a way that involves you more in the inner life. Of a, of a girl or a woman under, under enormous pressure, less sort of think PC, more rich novel writing. And I got to jump in with a burning. I got a burning. Yeah. The other compared to what is folks should check out to see what so-called young adult novels yeah. that their kids are reading yes, and compare it to this. And I would, yes. I, I, I would recommend this over most of those <laughs> YA novels that your kids are reading. And the other thing I've got to say is that she's also talking about, in a way, the promise of the women's movement from the 70s. And it was, we imagined that if women had power, that we would have a utopia. And instead, Alderman has given us a dysutopia because power in the absence of morality and principles is going to turn out the same way. Rebecca, you're going to get the last word. Gosh, I don't. That's a lot to ask. I mean, I would push back a little bit on the the 
claim that it would be better as a short story. I wanted more. I wanted I wanted more with time with these characters. I felt like I knew them and they were my sisters at the end of it. And I wanted to um, to hear more about Jocelyn, who we got you know a little bit of. I wanted to get more from her. I wanted to get Jocelyn. We should just say is the daughter yes, of the somewhat sorry. cynical politician. Uh, Margo. She, she's experiencing her powers a little bit differently than the other characters. So I, I do think it deserves a novel treatment. I Yes, of course, it occurred to me that it would be a good movie. Um, it's very visual in that regard. I didn't have the same alarm bell thinking that this was written purely from a stance of wanting to become a blockbuster. Um, I actually believe that they've already sold the rights for it to be a television series, which I actually think would be – It'll work, it'll work better that way. Yeah. All right. We need to wrap up here just so we'll have time uh, for you guys to make endorsements. Uh, the book is The Power. It's by Naomi Alderman. I think all of us would really recommend yes. uh, that you get it, that you read it. Uh, you, I think all of us were at least pretty riveted by it. Watch me. Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan, who really can shoot electricity out of her hands, but she just doesn't make a really big deal out of it. And by me, Kion Wolf. I can microwave food by shooting rays out of my butt. Amanda Fish can shoot bubbles out of her... never mind. And the part of Bill Curry was played by Gino Ariema. On Monday's show, the scramble is all over this weekend's news. And now... Back to Colin. All right. We've got time to do endorsements. We don't have a lot of time to do endorsements. I'll start over here. Rand, get us going. Very quick. Uh, the restaurant Poron and Pina at the at the Goodwin Hotel. It's oh, great. Oh, yeah. I've been there. It's terrific. Tyler Anderson's new place down there. Second, if you need a key cut, I would suggest going to West Hartford Lock on Prospect Avenue. Um, and uh, they have I'm, – I'm writing about keys currently – they have keys that are hundreds. They have like 20,000 keys in there. And the guy, Tom, who cuts your key, has been cutting keys there for 25 years. And he can tell you all these stories about what those keys represent. And keys are sort of disappearing. So fascinating thing. Finally, although this group doesn't need a boost on the show because they have a lot of connections, CT Improv, that's S-E-A-T-E-A Improv, they just do great stuff downtown Hartford. I did a movie dub thing with them a few weeks ago. And I had such a blast. I think I had more fun at this thing than I've had you know, in months. I actually ran into two of them on uh, the uh, new New Hartford line to New Haven, and they were talking about your performance and praising it. Uh, Rebecca, what have you got? So besides The Power, which I highly recommend, and anything written by Margaret Atwood, who actually advised Naomi Alderman's writing of this book, I've endorsed Margaret Atwood enough times, though, already. So I'm going to endorse its peak Collinsville season. The farmer's market is back. The Collinsville co-op is booming. There's lots to do and see. The paddle boards are on the river. So if you're looking for a fun weekend, come check out Collinsville. It's a nice place. I just want to say, when Rand endorsed that restaurant, I've never been to the restaurants that Rand endorsed. I've actually been to that restaurant. I'm so thrilled for myself. All right. Go ahead, uh, Kate. All right. Every year, I look forward to Monday Night Jazz in Bushnell Park in Hartford. Starts on July 9th. I've just started reading Wade in the Water by Tracy K. Smith, U.S. Poet Laureate, and I'll be interviewing her at the Sunken Garden on July 11th. And... Thinking about what's going on in the U.S. today, I recommend the 1993 movie Rabbit Proof Fence. It tells the story of a so-called aboriginal girl who was taken away from her family by the government of Australia with thousands of others. Uh, The person, Daisy... Cotabel, who uh, was the subject of that movie, just recently passed, and her um, obit is uh, in The Guardian. That's a, that's a great connection you just made. I mean, I know, in a million years, I wouldn't have made that connection, but it's absolutely spot on, and that's a terrific movie, too. But yes, 
so rabbit-proof fence. That's great. Okay, so uh, you're reading. I, I may have mentioned this book once before. Um, but um, when I picked up The Power, I had to put down a book I was reading called Educated by uh, Tara Westover. Uh, and the book, uh, books are kind of related. Uh, Tara Westover's book is the uh, story uh, – is her story of growing up in what amounted to, to an extreme Mormon cult – that consisted entirely of her own family, uh, uh, presided over by her father and then her mother and many siblings. A and she grew up with no birth certificate. She grew up with no public education whatsoever. Uh, and through and when she went to BYU, her family was so conservative, her father was so domineering and cultish that when she went to Brigham Young University, I mean, he thought she was going to Gomorrah. Uh, and uh, so anyway, it's, it's basically sort of how she fights through this. I mean, her their plan for her that was, was that she was going to be a plural wife, so to speak, you know, that she would be uh, married uh, into some kind of polygamous arrangement. Uh, she wound up with other plans for herself, wound up at Cambridge University, among other places, despite the fact she had no public education. It's an amazing story. Uh, and the other thing that I would quickly say is that, um, and this isn't an endorsement so much, maybe I can make an endorsement and just say that obviously, uh, I mean, I spent the first 20 years of my career in the newspaper business, uh, and uh, yesterday's events in Annapolis were uh, searing for everybody and maybe especially searing for those of us who spent a lot of time in newspaper newsrooms and a place that always felt really kind of safe. I don't know why it felt safe. But, I mean we – it often was a very unstable place and a lot of people with you know disturbances would be very interested in what we were doing. But uh, it's just so sad. And, and uh, Rob Hyacin was a guy who uh, had reached out to me uh, earlier in my career to write to me about stuff that I'd been writing. Uh, it just seemed like a very especially gentle and sweet guy. So I don't know. Hug your newspaper. Hug a newspaper person. Uh, pick up a newspaper, an actual physical newspaper and read it. Do something uh, like that. Maybe honor the work of these people. And I guess I, the one thing I'll endorse is last night one of their reporters said uh, – he tweeted, I'll tell you one thing. We're getting a damn newspaper out tonight. And that's so much – that's so newspaper people. You know, yes, we just had a shooter in our newsroom. We're getting a newspaper out tonight. Thanks to everybody who uh, helped out today and by the – thanks especially for this great panel, poet Kate Russian, uh, scholar Rebecca Castellani uh, and a writer Rand Richards Cooper. Uh, we'll be back on Monday with The Scramble. Talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. Come on the radio.